You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Harry Kristen and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you are new to the show, let me start by saying welcome with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rob last week where he laid out a very thoughtful framework for how to select which markets you should include in your portfolio, which I thought was a great and practical approach. So if you missed that episode, I invite you to go back and check it out. And as you may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor to challenge consensus narratives and to learn how to think critically about how to invest in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can send us your questions, if you can share these episodes, and not least, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we would greatly appreciate this. And this is a way for us to see that you get some value from the time and dedication each week that we put into it to create these episodes, and as long as that continues, we will, of course, continue to do them. Harry, fantastic to have you on the podcast this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are? I'm very well. As you know, Niels, we go back a long time and it's great to be on the show. Life is good. So thank you. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, people may not know that, but I have known Harry for two decades and he's truly one of the smartest people that I've come across in, in my career. So you're in for a treat this week. Now, before we get into this, all these topics we have lined up for you, which I really truly believe our listeners will enjoy. Um, let me do a brief market wrap, but let me, of course, also, as usual, just acknowledge all of you who left the rating and review this week uh, on iTunes. It really does help. In terms of a market wrap, now, Wednesday this week provided a proverbial gut punch to the capital markets. The day started with the U.S. inflation report for October that was way above expectation and was um, capped with a 30-year bond auction that was an absolute disaster. So year-over-year year CPI came in at 6.2% versus 5.4% registered last month. Fed Chairman Powell continues to believe that the uptick in inflation is going to pass, but it's not happening and people are not happy about it. In the latest release, energy had an outsized effect on the result, climbing 4.8% month over month, but, the, but that represents a little over 7% of the total. Looking at the various subcategories, not a single category, category was down on the month and the largest housing rose 0.7% for the month. That component has been relatively subdued to date and seems to be finally reflecting what has been happening with home prices over the last year. After digesting the inflation news, the Treasury Department auctioned 25 billion 30-year bonds. And as one observer put it, it was an unmitigated disaster. The auction cleared at 1.94%, 5.2 basis points away from where it was trading at auction time, despite there being some quote-unquote pre-trading of new issues to avoid surprises. A sloppy auction like this is a symptom that something is not right in the market. This is the fourth sloppy auction this year, and the Fed should be highly concerned. The week seven-year auction earlier this year was an eyebrow raiser for sure, but it was explained away as being an odd maturity with no natural buyers. But the 30-year bond is a different story. It, along with the 10-year note, are benchmark interest rates and bank and insurance companies have an ongoing demand for them. The number of bids, which came in at 2.2 times the size of the auction, was on the smaller size but would never cause the auction to fail. However, it's fair to think of the enormous tail as an indication 
that Wall Street is worried about who will finance the ballooning debt once the Fed exits secondary market buying. Perhaps the Fed needs to think of a new plan, and perhaps they could call it Buy Back Better. Anyways, enough said, Harry. How are you doing? What's keeping, uh, what are you keeping an eye on these days, by the way? Well, um, I have to admit I'm quite client-driven, so people will call me and say, oh, I'm worried about this, or can you look at that? And I, I would have thought I'd be the last person to look at this, but Bitcoin has been at the top of my list recently. So someone came to me and said, is Bitcoin a currency? And I'm an options guy. I'm a volatility guy. And, and uh, so I looked at the relative prices of options for Bitcoin. And what I found was that given the yield for Bitcoin, you know, if you stick it in a, in a Bitcoin denominated account and you get 5%, it should have a, a left tail. It should have some negative skewness in a left tail, but the surface is totally flat. And what that implies to me is that it's not behaving one bit like a risky currency. And um, so that's something that sort of hit me. And, uh, you know, it's something where I'd like to know that there's some consistency between the way people think about risk in the asset and the way people invest. So that's been kind of a, something I've been looking at. Are you also trying to figure out then if it doesn't look like a currency, what might it be? I mean, have you taken it that step further? Well, it, it recently crossed my, my view, but um, it's obviously a speculative instrument. Um, but being able to assign some solid risk number to it um, seems pretty practical, at least from an institutional standpoint. So I'm not clear what it is beyond a speculative asset that um, has high enough volatility that it's highly tradable. Yeah, interesting. Um, and by the way, uh, as people may or may not know, there is a major upgrade coming to Bitcoin very soon, something called Taprot or something like that, as far as I remember. Um, so it will be interesting to see what impact that has. So we'll see. Anyways, uh, from a trend-following update point of view, uh, this week the softer treasury auction was actually good news for our trend-following strategies as almost all fixed income positions were profitable this week with the euro dollar, so the short-term US rates, leading the pack. Another sector that did well was grains, despite one of the market's soybean meal catching a massive bid out of the blue, and that didn't help our short position in, in that particular market. Uh, metals, currencies, soft and equities were also positive for the week, leaving only energies which struggled all week really with lower prices across the board. My trend following barometer or trend barometer um, was a little bit weak. It did move up, but it's still weak-ish um, at 34. Now, um, that might reflect kind of month-to-date numbers for uh, trend followers, um, but let's hope it improves a little bit as we move closer to year end. In terms of volatility trading on our side, in the land of volatility, the week was a bit of a roller coaster ride for the S&P 500 slash VIX relationship. As noted last week, there have been some intensive option buying towards the end of the previous week, which caused a positive relationship between spot volatility and the underlying, meaning that the VIX increased alongside the S&P 500. This trend somewhat continued uh, early on this week and led to the longest stretch of simultaneous upward moves in fixed strike volatility in the S&P 500 changes since 2014, and the second highest overall since 2004, eight consecutive days ending on Monday. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the S&P 500 finally took a break. And hadn't it been for the sharp end-of-day rebound on Wednesday, the S&P 500 would have had a one-sigma down day, which seems to be rare these days. While it certainly isn't the only reason for the abrupt end to this streak, perhaps the announcement of Elon Musk selling off a large block of Tesla shares, which had been one of the main drivers of the option speculation, and the following sell-off in Tesla shares driving the price down 15%, played a significant significant role. Now, on our side, our volatility strategy was positive for the week, and, and it's still slightly flat, slightly down for the month of November so far. For my own trend following model, where I can, of course, go into more detail, it was a slight down week, um, but it's still up for the month of November, 0.82 of a percent, up 8.85% year to date for 2021. 
performance so far this month breaks down to group one classical trend models up about half a percent group two which is a long bias trend following uh, down 1.11 percent and group three which are these fast reacting uh, models um, they are up 1.44 percent in terms of sector attributions the bests are so far equities pressured metals and softs and the worst sectors so far this month energies currencies and short-term interest rates if we drill down to single markets for the month, the DAX, the NASDAQ, and gold makes up the top three. And at the bottom, we find crude oil, Canadian dollar, and heating oil. In terms of the current positioning, the program is mostly long. Uh, all of the markets like energies, equities, and a bit of grains, metals, actually except for palladium in the metal sector. And then in the currencies, it's pretty mixed positioned right now. And finally, in terms of the riskiness of the portfolio, this risk to stop level that I tend to uh, focus on, if everything gets stopped out on Monday, it should lose around 10.93%, which is down from about 12.48% last week. So uh, stops have moved a little bit closer. Now we're going to talk, uh, go into some great topics that uh, Harry brought along. And uh, what is great about Harry is that he has so much knowledge about both trend following and volatility. And what we're going to do today is to explore some different scenarios that I think a lot of investors, if not all investors, are thinking about at the moment, given the massive bull market inequities that we have been witnessing for the past 13 years. Now, we know that trend following is often referred to as crisis alpha. And as much as I like the idea of having a catchy term, that we can use in our narrative about trend following. I also feel that crisis alpha has also presented some challenges, at least from where I sit. But no doubt there are two great strategies, namely trend following and long volatility, that needs to be part of the discussion when investors think about protecting the portfolio. So let's break it down into different reasons why investors should consider these strategies. So Harry, the first thing and I guess the overall theme of what we're trying to do and what you've suggested we talk about today is this complementary relationship that trend following and long volatility strategies have. And what I thought you did really brilliantly was to um, try and break it up to uh, in, in three types of scenarios. Um, and I'm going to kind of just give the, 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 the headline and then I'm going to let you run with it, so to speak. But I think the first one, as you write it here, I'm worried about a protracted bear market in equities and other risk assets. What should I do? I think there are a lot of people thinking, you know, sitting out there with that specific challenge. So take us into that uh, that framework. Well, um, trend following does provide crisis alpha, which I think it does in many cases. This is a good scenario for it. And... Longer term trend following has been proven to do quite well in scenarios where risky assets go down and the signal to noise ratio is pretty high. So it isn't too choppy on the way down. And a lot of people I talk to say, we're not that worried about the, the severe bear market scenario uh, that occurs over a long period because we believe our trend followers will kick in and go short in the right assets along, along the way. So trend following, especially longer horizon stuff, tends to do well, at least in my belief, in protracted bear markets where the downtrend is strong enough to overcome the choppiness. Now, long volatility is a bit of a different, different kettle of fish because um, even if you believe that prices trend, and I do, and I'm sure Niels does, most of the viewership, um, volatility doesn't trend. It may explode, it may collapse, but it tends to be more mean reverting over time. So long volatility, where you're looking to protect against a multi-month or even multi-year horizon down move in the S&P or credit or whatever, um, is only a good strategy, in my opinion, if you can buy it at good value. So if volatility is expensive, if everyone is panicking, and the, even over longer horizons, you have to pay a lot for insurance in premium terms, um, it's not great to buy volatility in that regime. Even if you get the direction right, you will have overpaid in premium terms for the protection you want. So in that sort of scenario, in my view, longer term trend following is superior to long vol. However, 
at the end of a bull market cycle, it has often been the case that volatility is cheap across all maturities and across most strikes, which means you can really go out and be almost like a private equity fund and be a buyer of volatility, warehouse it, and then wait for the event to happen. And in that scenario, it's great because the time decay on your positions is low. Um, Longer maturity options tend to decay more slowly. And you have a lot of leveraged exposure to volatility. So if people go from complacent to scared, you, you can monetize that purely in terms of changes in sentiments that drive up the prices of the insurance that you hold. So trend following is great, especially longer term trend following in that scenario. Long volatility can be great, but you need to identify pockets of value in the options market. Yeah, and I completely agree. Um, well, what I will add to that from my perspective is that I think I think a lot of people think of, again, trend following as being something that can make a lot of money from going short equities when there's a crisis. But as you alluded to, I think it's important to remember that actually... <laughs> Usually that's not where we make the money when there is a crisis. In fact, we tend to lose money and sometimes quite a bit in the equity sectors of of our portfolio. Where we tend to make money is actually on all the other things in the portfolio, which is also why I have um, sometimes been quite worried when I see how trend following is is portrayed and how it's quote-unquote sold as a concept where you say to people who own equities, oh, but you should just do trend following on equities. But actually, that's not necessarily a great thing because you need all the other parts of the portfolio. You need the diversification. Diversification is never talked about as the secret source in trend following, but it really is part of the secret source in trend following. And all I can say is when I look, and and we've certainly studied this, when I look at which of the sectors that have done the best during each of the crisis we've been through in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, uh, you know, it has been things like commodities, actually. That's been the most consistent contributor to P&L during uh, a crisis. Um, and so that's, I think it's just something that is is maybe not always fully uh, appreciated um, when you think about it uh, this way. I strongly agree. I think your point of clarification is very good. Uh, I'm not referring to trend following in the market you wish to protect against so much as a the P&L stream generated from a diversified trend following program. Because what we do know is that major sell-offs or dislocations across markets are often caused by margin calls or a sharp contraction in leverage. And as leverage builds, trends build, as leverage is quickly pulled out, Trends reverse and can move strongly in the other direction. And you don't know which market that this leverage um, adjustment will occur in necessarily. But what you do know is that when markets go from risk on to risk off, odds are there will be exaggerated moves in some market or some subset of markets as access to leverage changes. Yeah. So, of course, if you think about, um, and, and we've got a couple of other scenarios that we want to talk about, but I just want to stay uh, on this one for a little bit longer and and um, and, and just to flush out a, a couple of other scenarios. When you think about, um, so I think a lot of people um, have a, re- at least if they've been listening to to the podcast for a period of time, they, they probably have a pretty good idea as to what the concept of trend following is and 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 why it makes sense uh, for it to to do well during a crisis as we've just talked about um but in in the world of volatility i i mean i think it's a much more difficult strategy to to understand and i know of course you recently was on the new volatility series as our first guest and 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 did you know had a great conversation with jason and and so people should go and listen to that so i'm not trying to replicate all of that content today but I am maybe just trying to think about when people, if people look at their choices of the portfolio, and as, as the question um, sort of alludes to, they're afraid of some kind of protracted bear market. I am I, I kind of would almost hesitate say that most trend-following strategies will do more or less the same job. It's not entirely true. We've seen that during the COVID crisis. But I get the feeling that long volatility strategies are not nearly as similar to each other or how should I put it 
that it actually can make a huge difference in terms of of what kind of long volatility that you get involved in. Um, am I right? Or how would you phrase it much better than me? <laughs> I'm not sure I can phrase it better. But what I will say is that long volatility has so much more dimensionality. In other words, even if you pick one market, you can vary across maturities and strikes. So you can trade two entirely different long volatility strategies in the S&P. You can probably trade 10 entirely different long vol strategies in the S&P. So there's a lot more variability as to the way you can play it. And this is one reason why we kind of landed upon the topic, Niels and I, that we're talking about today, because to a large degree, the long vol manager needs to be presented with a scenario that they wish to hedge against. And then they need to offer up somewhat predictable outcomes given the scenario that the client is worried about. Now, as a long vol manager, you don't have to run customized or bespoke mandates. You can run a fund. That's fine. But there, there, as you pointed out, Niels, there's such a wide range of ways to play convexity or long vol, even in a single market, that there needs to be a clear understanding as to what the client who's invested in the strategy is expecting and how it can be delivered. So the, the way to do this is to, sadly, in a way, to put a bit more pressure on the client to decide what they really want. I mean, I think that's a very important point. My own experience for more than 30 years is that that's a moving target. People will tell you what they want, the crisis occur or something else occur, and then maybe they have a slightly different memory of what they really wanted. Um, or or, or uh, uh, let's just put it that way. So that's a big ask, so to speak, in some ways. Um, so how how do you how do you how do you deal? How do you manage those expectations? Actually, well, there, there are various sorts of strategies we run, but I won't plug those. Obviously, what I will say is that there are different ways to run a long volatility program. One way is to say I will spend X percent of notional in premium every year. Maybe I'll fix. I'll focus on one or two markets or maybe I'll be broad, and I can't spend more than that. And given that budget, I'll try and deliver the punchiest return I can. That's one way to do it. Uh, in that case, you've fixed one of, the, one of the variables in hedging or in long vol, which is cost. But you haven't necessarily fixed outcomes because even for the most robust uh, long vol strategy, there is some path dependence. How long does it take for the event to occur? What happens to the market's perception of risk um, in, in implied volatility terms when it does occur and so on. So that's one way to do it that's kind of clean in one dimension, but a little less clean in the other one. Um, the other way to do it is to say, I will give you a specific payout and I'll try and manage the bleed um, as, well, as best I can, either by involving other strategies that pay for some of that carry, that negative carry, or by trading spreads. And uh, it is fairly complex, but what I would say is that you can more or less pin down one of the two. You can either pin down reliability of outcomes or cost, but it's very difficult to pin them both down. It's, it's really a situation where a good strategy, in my view, is a strategy that at least breaks even if there's some mini or some moderate spike in volatility or risk over a given period that makes a huge amount if there's a major event and that falls within a predefined range or pre-understood range if nothing happens. And, you know, the way you think about it as a long vol manager, at least in my view, and maybe this is more broadly applicable to all active managers, is you don't want to have any bad phone calls where you go to the client and say, well, I know you expected this, but I delivered something totally different. And so really that communication is vital on the long vol side. Yeah. I can't remember actually whether you already mentioned this, right? But actually listening to the volatility series that we are in the middle of publishing, and I can't remember which of the three first guests who mentioned that. I think it could have been in the last episode three uh, where it came up. 
And I think the reason I want to bring it up is because we talk in this case about people who are afraid of a protracted bear market, meaning something that lasts quite a while. I guess that when you want to protect against um, a, a, a bear market in equities, but if that bear market is slow, right? If you lose like half a percent every, if the S&P goes down half a percent every day for 30 days, volatility is not going to go up. So how how should investors think about this idea of having a long vol strategy? I mean, or let me phrase it differently. Should they think, of, I mean, I guess they should think about it very differently if they are afraid of a protracted bear market versus more of a kind of a sharp type of bear market. But but even, but having said that, Harry, and I, I want to hear your answer, having said that, we don't know what kind of bear market we're going to get. This is what makes it so difficult, I think, for for you guys on the volatility side, right? Okay, there are lots of potentially juicy answers to this one. Okay, good. First one is a protracted bear market. Yes, it could occur where volatility ticks up by one point every month and the S&P ticks down by some small amount every month and the market just gradually declines 20, 30% or whatever. But the evidence suggests, and again, I'm not going to focus too much on statistics because I am trying to cover events that can fall outside of common statistical bands. But if you look at all the months, say, where the S&P dropped by 6 or 7% or more, I think it's fairly clear that uh, two-thirds of the move, of the down move, occurred within a week mm-hmm. in the vast majority of those cases. And this sort of concentration of the move in a small sub-interval is pretty common throughout markets. You don't often see major moves occur in a very shallow way, unless you're talking about sort of carry strategies that have that grind up and crash down. But for strategies that have two-way volatility, you don't usually see that. And so, um, yes, this is an issue that all long vol managers will face. The market, if the market moves in their direction, but volatility flatlines or comes down along the way, and they're hedging fairly extreme outcomes. They might even lose on the hedge. And that is an issue that the client needs to be aware of. Now, it's not necessarily a bad issue because volatility gives you two dimensions to profit and two, dim- two, dim- or two underlying degrees of freedom to lose. You can make money on direction. You can make money on the repricing of risk and or you can lose on one or both of them. So that flexibility is one of the great strengths of long vol, but also one of the weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to the second kind of scenario that um, that you uh, highlighted, which is another thing that I think, and I completely agree, that a lot of investors, perhaps actually more nowadays than before, and, and the framework is, I'm worried about a sharp one-month sell-off after an extended bull market. So kind of what we've seen now in 2020, what we saw in 2018. So slightly different types of, of crises, uh, maybe even in t- twice in 2018. So, um, yeah, talk to, talk to me about, about that scenario. I will, but I'd, I'd like to ramble about one thing first. Yeah, so, go ahead. I know you're pretty freeform, so I'll, sure. I'll go with that. Um, one of the things I want to say is that there is a creative tension between what bank structured products desks do and what we try and do on the long volatility hedge fund side. And basically what we're doing is we're trading around those major structured products because that's where the big flows come in. That's where volatility goes up. That's where dealers have to defend against uh, unhedged positions. So they have to mark, mark up the price of risk and so on. So what we're trying to do is to provide a cheap alternative that gives similar, if not punchier payouts based on the standard strategies that are out there in the world. And so understanding the flows, understanding the positioning of the big players who are trying to reach mega scale and doing things that are more efficient than that, that provide similar, if not better outcomes, but at lower cost, is a big part of the game. Yeah, yeah. 
And I guess that's actually what your book, your latest book is about, isn't it? More or less understanding these whales. Yeah, we tried. Um, we, I was trying to get to the point where I could really map out positioning risk across all the major markets in some general way. But what I wound up with was a series of specific case studies where it could be done. Fantastic. So that, I think that was a major, major step forward. But there are many more things to cover and the structured products markets are one of the big ones. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you have to remember and send me a copy of your new book, even if it's a PDF, so I can include it in my upcoming update to the ultimate guide of the best investment books in the world, which I normally publish around uh, Christmas time. Well, you'll have to read the book first. Still, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> now, um, okay, so the, so the second scenario we wanted to highlight is this, I'm worried about a sharp one-month sell-offs, right? And how that changes the thinking um, from a... Uh, investor point of view? Yeah, well, I, many years ago, I did some work with uh, Mark Malik and, and his team. And they had a model which uh, was kind of a trend based product. I won't go into the details, that's their business. But one way you could use it was to slice and dice the performance of trend following in various markets as a function of the breakout horizon. So you could look at the performance of short-term breakout systems in the S&P or the 10-year, whatever you felt like, versus the performance of longer-term breakout systems. And the thing that was clear, and we published this in a paper, was that um, shorter-term systems, at least as defined by them, had a higher loading to, to realized volatility. So if you looked at daily volatility with a 20-day look-back window, or you even looked at changes in the VIX, shorter-term systems tended to latch onto those moves uh, and perform better um, than longer-term ones. Now, I can couch this in the language of machine learning. I'll, I'll actually leave that for a couple of minutes. But the idea is that um, trend following is such a wide spectrum of things that um, if you were worried to, about defending against a burst in short-term volatility, it may be appropriate to focus on a manager that has a shorter holding period. So that's one way to play it in the trend space. And Niels can add or correct me as he sees fit. Um, on the option side, it's, um, it's more a function of, of loading into gamma hedges. So I'm tr I'm, as an options manager, I'm trying to do the same thing, which is to say, how can I have at fixed cost build positions that scale rapidly into a directional move, but scale equally rapidly out of a move against me? And with options, it's easy because uh, a long option strategy continuously scales into a move up or down according to its delta. And so that kind of dynamic rebalancing takes place automatically. So if I can find points of pressure or cheap places to buy insurance, I can protect against moves like that pretty easily. Now, if you look at, I, I mentioned a few things about positioning of large institutions, and I don't want to rabbit on about that too long. But what has been observed in the markets, not just by me, but by others, is that institutions have been showing a tendency to sell puts and sell calls over, let's say, one month maturities and roll those, those structures and buy insurance over longer horizons. So what that means is that they're selling short-dated options to get the rapid time decay out of them, and they're rolling that structure so that if nothing too dramatic happens, they keep harvesting carry or yield or time decay, however you wish to put it, by selling near-term options that have a high time decay as a percentage of premium sold, um, and just rolling that stuff. Now, what that's created is a situation where the price of short-dated risk or the price of short-dated volatility is pretty low compared to longer maturities. So for someone who wants to create a hedging structure to defend against short-term down, down moves, buying that short-dated insurance is actually quite attractive relative to the stuff further out based on the nature of the flows that have been going through many of the markets that I've been interested in the most basic being the S&P 500. So 
Again, if you look at the term structure and the term structure of risk or volatility is very steep, defending against a short-term correction is actually quite cheap in the options markets and may in fact be superior in some ways to shorter-term trend-following strategies. But both have their place. Yeah. No, I mean, you brought up a lot of good things. And since you kind of invited me to comment on the trend-following part, I will. So here are some of my thoughts. Um, clearly, we know that um, there is a, a small part of the trend-following universe that focuses on short-term timeframes. And I, I don't necessarily want to call them trend-followers because I think these are more short-term momentum strategies where you don't necessarily use the same types of methodology um, that we would do in the trend space. But actually, that is the important point because I... I'm also listening to and I'm also involved in conversations whereby so as trend followers we talk about you know what's the optimal parameters what's the optimal look back period we should use in order to deliver long term sustained robust ideally relatively steady returns and I think for um you know without being sort of a, well to be a little bit generic I guess you could say that if you allow your model to be more volatile, if you allow your model to have bigger drawdowns, in the long run, it's going to give you the highest absolute return as long as, and that is important, as long as you manage the risk so you never have ruin, right? That you have to avoid the ruin part of it. And um, and, and so, for example, in, in our case, to use a practical case from, from Don, our founder, uh, Bill Don, back in the 70s, he worked out that something that what we would think of today as around 20% value at risk with a 99% confidence level was around the level that you could you shouldn't go higher than that really in order to continue to stay in business but also produce very high absolute returns. Okay. Now... So so we always, as trend followers, face with this challenge that our investors like the long-term returns, but they don't like the shorter-term drawdowns and volatility. And sometimes the drawdowns are not so short, actually, in time. So, um, and then we get asked, you know, isn't there something we can do um, to overcome that? And of course, the answer is yes, we can introduce shorter-term timeframes. Um, and that's going to help you during periods like February of 2018, and, and, and similar periods. Um, but uh, we have to caveat and say, but it's going to detract from the long-term performance. And at least on our side as, as a firm, that's not what we're trying to do. So, so we're not going to do that. Now, then I also hear the discussions that, and, and, and this is actually something that, that I've spoken with Jerry about uh, a number of times, where we talk about, well, why don't we just take part of the risk budget or, or why don't we have shorter term look back periods for part of our overall risk in the, in the portfolio and i think the general finding is that if we do that yeah performance goes down um, because that kind of trend following doesn't work so well in the shorter term space and i think that's absolutely true but my thinking is a little bit different and it's reflected in the way the trend following model that i talk about that i uh, was part of developing many years ago is designed because I feel that if you want shorter term timeframes in your trend overall trend following program, you actually can't use the classical breakout type models just with shorter timeframes. That's the tra that's the problem. So you have to, in my opinion, think of coming up with completely different trend following approaches, if I can call it that, if you want to trade in the short term. And that might be, you could still use a breakout to identify the entry, but you might have to use time stops to get out and not wait for the price to go against you because it will and you won't really make money from it. So you want to capture just the initial momentum, but after three or five days, you just want to get out. Those were some of the models that I was part of developing um, you know, many years ago. And I think that that's the kind of thinking. And I think this is also why a lot of classical trend followers don't really end up doing that because they they want to kind of stay within the same type of trend following that they do in the longer term. And therefore, they just say, okay, but okay, we're not going to be able to overcome short term. 
but then people can obviously, as you suggest, they can obviously allocate to some shorter term managers. And and then on the other side of, of, of things, you have the shorter term managers who I agree with you, they should, they not always do, but they should provide a better return stream in the initial phase of a crisis because we're going to get caught. Usually we're going to get caught with the wrong positions at, at the time of the beginning of the crisis, right? But the long-term performance, with one or two exceptions, as far as I can tell, the long-term performance is not very sexy, let's put it that way, for short-term trend following. I couldn't agree more, Niels. In fact, um, what we've tried to do without giving details has been to, at least as a research project, has been to use machine learning for shorter-term um, systems. And your point is well taken, that a simple moving average crossover or breakout may not generate very good results in a uh, shorter horizon context. So what we've tried to do is to say, look, let's constrain a machine learning system to have a, a short holding period or a short target holding period, long or short, in various markets. And then um, using that as a constraint, find features that lead to decent performance. And those features are not just breakouts. You need to take more into account than, again, without going into details, you need to take more into account about the path or the uh, regime under which the breakout occurs than simply looking at whether the price has crashed through a limit up or down over the past three days. Yeah. And so as an investor looking at this, you you end up in the kind of the same situation, I think, that... Okay, here maybe you could say, well, I have now I have three choices. I could still go with some long-term trend following because if there's a crisis, it could, even if it's a short crisis, like, I mean, March last year wasn't a long crisis. I mean, literally it was like a month, but there were some trend following systems and I certainly know one of them that made money even that, even during that period. But you obviously we can't guarantee that we will. I think that's fair to say. Then you also have to then, as, as you suggest, well, then we have to look at the shorter term managers, which should have a higher probability of doing so. And then we should look at the long ball strategies. So now you have three things you could choose from to help you build that overall protection of your portfolio. Do you have any thoughts as to how you should allocate uh, uh, um, between the three of those? Because again, you end up in this situation that people might you know, be really cheerful during the crisis with a short trend following, short term trend following, let's call it that still, and their long volatility strategies. But then uh, after the crisis, it, things might look different and then they may not be so happy with their trend following because it didn't really kick in as much as they hoped for. So there's going to be some discontent no matter what. So how do they, how could they think about these three choices and actually end up with something they're really happy about? Well, we, we spoke about how they're two degrees of freedom for long vol strategies, direction and repricing of risk, or repricing of risk sentiment. So for a month like uh, late February to late March 2020, long vol, if monetized correctly, and that's a giant if, sure. is a great strategy and superior um, structurally to short-term momentum chasing because the down move, at least in risky assets, was a sort of for the S&P, you saw a very high degree of chop in a sharply descending down market. That's not necessarily great for managers that rely upon uh, sustained price trends to, to pile into a position. Whereas for volatility managers, it was fine because they were making plenty on the repricing of risk. So if the VIX went from you know, the low teens to 60, 70, 80 uh, at the peak, uh, you didn't need to get the direction right. You could make all the money on the repricing of risk. That is really one of the major selling points of volatility as a protection strategy. You don't need to worry as much about the path if risk reprices in a stable way. If it goes up to 80 and then drops to 10 the next day, that's not so good. But if it goes to 50, 60, 70, it would be hard not to make a significant profit on such a trade.
Okay, so we've talked about kind of the prolonged bear market. We've talked about the the one month type bear market, which we've, I mean, again, both of these we've seen in in, in our lifetime for sure. But uh, um, you know, some people may not remember these prolonged bear markets, but they do exist. I can assure you. Um, now, then we have the really quick ones, the flash crashes, which you and I have also seen uh, a few times. Um, I don't know if they're that frequent. Well, it depends on how you look at it. If you look at I individual think stocks, say that, yeah. yes. it's very frequent. Right. There are not countless, but there are very high incidences of individual names and even ETFs going limit up or limit down in a given day. And uh, so they're trading halts all the time. I think there were thousands of them in February and March of 2020 in US listed stocks only. Even in December 2018, there were hundreds of cases of stocks going, individual names going limit up or limit down. Remember that the bans for undiversified securities are 10% up or down in a single day. And um, that suggests that there are lots of flash crashes in individual markets. At a, at a macro level, not so many. Yes, we had two, in 2010, there was a flash crash in the S&P and, and related indices and so on. And there have been other ones too. There was the Volmageddon in the VIX in February 2018. So they're not super common, but these air pocket moves, in my opinion, are becoming increasingly likely because of the changing structural dynamics in markets. There are fewer people who are willing to take the other side of strongly moving positions than there used to be, at least in the equity and credit markets. Uh, so fewer people willing to warehouse risk Yes, lots of high-frequency trading outfits, but they're more thinly capitalized than the banks and the value managers of old. And so I think we do have less liquidity and a higher probability of air pocket moves down in an unpredictable way. And then the question that begs the question, how to protect against that? Should you protect against that? Is it something where you can have a 10% down day and it just bounces back every time the next few days? Or could that initial... Um, impetus drive other assets down in a vicious leverage cycle that causes real damage and where you, you need to get something out of the first move. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard slog to protect going forward. So that's really the question that I'm raising and how to protect against that. I think long volatility shines there because you will get a repricing of risk. Whereas if you're momentum-based, yes, you could get it right. And you will get it right over time, hopefully. But the initial move, you don't know how you're going to be positioned going into that. And if you believe, as I do, that markets increasingly trend, but have the potential for liquidity gaps, black holes uh, along the way, options could be very useful in defending against that. Yeah, and no, I think that makes a lot of sense. The way I think of it in, in a much more simplistic fashion is that when you think about trend following and these flash crashes, what I like about trend following is, one, we tend to trade. Obviously, I know some trend followers, we, we, we have them on the show every or every or, or every other week, so to speak, um, who trade individual equities. So that, that, that I think there's definitely some risk in there. But for at least for the strategies that I'm involved in, um, it's indices and it's via futures, right? So, so I think the the beauty of trend following in that respect is that we are less sensitive to some of that risk. Um, it's not to say that you know a ten percent flash crash in the S and P um, isn't painful or could be painful, but if it is a flash crash and it kind of bounces back pretty quickly, there is less likely that we're going to be badly hurt, I think, um, partly because our our risk for each individual market is is smaller. As you rightly say, of course, if all markets in the portfolio reacts on that news and you get caught the wrong way on everything, of course, then that's a major, major issue. But generally speaking, I think what, what maybe trend following, um, you know, can add or can help with is this a massive amount of diversification that we truly have in the portfolio? I strongly agree. Um, it brings me back to the first book uh, that I wrote uh, called The Second Leg Down, which you kindly reviewed, which basically argues that um, if volatility is cheap, options buying strategies can be very powerful over multiple horizons. 
However, once volatility goes bid, if the VIX is at 50, if the CVIX is at a high level and so on, trend following is a, perhaps a, certainly a cheaper and perhaps an equally reliable way to protect against further drawdowns. So one of the main messages, the back of the envelope message that I could give you is that it's a good idea to rotate some capital from long volatility to trend following as conditions get worse. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's quite important to, um, yeah, long vol- to mention. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but long volatility is kind of your, I hate to say this as a, someone trying to run a sustainable business, but long volatility gives you access to cash that you can redeploy in other areas if there is an event, a major event. So the idea of, of long volatility is that you put some money in, you maintain it, you, you keep the protection on, you try and find someone who can build protection cheaply, but with high convexity. And if something happens, you have the freedom to redeploy some of that capital into distressed assets or into other risk mitigation strategies that uh, should do fine if there's high realized volatility, but don't pay up for insurance. Yeah, I know you said it's hard for a volatility manager to admit that, but all I can say is we as trend followers, we, we share that because we are all also often used as the ATM for liquidity. When when things get a little bit tough, they can rely on trend following strategies to provide them with that liquidity that they may need for Martin calls elsewhere. So I fully understand that. The way I think about, I mean, just to summarize it from my point of view, I've got a couple of follow-up questions for you, but just to summarize it from my point of view, I have exposure to both types of strategies personally. And the way I think about it is that I want some exposure to volatility because I think if there is a big crisis, I think that's going to be the first line of defense. I, you know, It should be a strategy that can turn on a dime. That's very important. That's something that can go from essentially short to long volatility in, in because I don't use a long only strategy. Let's, let me uh, make that clear. So it, it's something that could potentially help me out if, if there is a crisis in the initial phase where most likely a trend following strategy, certainly a medium to long term strategy might get caught with the wrong positions for a while, for a few weeks. And then I, um, it's my expectation then my, that my trend following allocation will then kick in and and do the heavy lifting for the remainder of the um, of of the crisis, and then you could actually say that potentially they could shift roles again as the crisis comes to an end. We know the trend followers are gonna you know give back some of those profits, and who who knows? May, maybe your vol, vol manager can actually do something constructive at that time. So I I like both. I will say I overweight trend. I I feel more comfortable in the expected payout and return profile than from a vol strategy. But that's just me from from the sideline. How does that sound in your ears? It sounds good. I can make a fancy comment if, you, if you'd like. I will do that. Just to yeah. please some, some of the viewers or listeners, uh, which is that if you think of the world as, if you think of modeling or systematic trading in a Bayesian context, where you have data coming in and you have a set of rules the rules cannot change as quickly as the data. Otherwise, you'd have a highly unstable system. And so trend following as a systematic strategy or certain machine learning or other Bayesian um, strategies cannot respond as quickly to sudden changes in the nature of data or the pr- price action as the data itself. So they take a little bit of time to adapt. So even if you've built the most streamlined machine learning system, the most using high frequency data and so on, it takes a while for the system to realize something's changed or to latch on to a change in the trend. That's where long volatility shines. It's good at managing breakpoints. Something happens outside of the bands of predictability, you know, outside of the belly of the distribution of returns. That's where you need long volatility the most. And um, I think that's really one of the strong points in marrying together or welding together systematic strategies with strategies that use a lot of quantitative inputs, but ultimately rely upon um, analysis of flows or positioning like long volatility, because they cover those scenarios that where there's a sharp regime shift or a sharp change 
And even the most well-designed systematic strategy will take a little bit of of time to adapt. Yeah, no, well said, well said. Okay, so I've got a couple of sort of um, follow-up questions, and and if you have anything you want to uh, you know add and or, or or somewhere else you want to go with this conversation, feel free. But so, for example, last year was a great year for both volatility and trend following. I think that's fair to say, and and actually, trend following is adding to that it's it's it looks like right now at least that it's having one of at you know one of it the best years it's had for the last decade or so um at least since 2014 so that's obviously great now i'm not necessarily referring specifically to your own strategy but if you look at the landscape of volatility strategies how does that look in 2021 and also What's the dispersion like among volatility strategies? Um, because there has been some, quite a bit of dispersion, I have to admit, in the trend land, depending on do you trade Chinese markets, do you trade crypto, stuff like that has actually meant quite a big difference between managers. But still, overall, I would say overall performance has been very, very strong. What does that look like in 2021 for volatility? Well, there's a sharp distinction between relative value volatility and long volatility. Uh, relative value strategies had massive dispersion in 2020 with some funds going out of business, some notable cases. This year has been quite good for RV, which can implicitly rely upon stability of market action. Uh, long vols had a tough year this year, generally. I mean, there's quite a lot of variation because it ranges from Pure hedging, which has almost universally gone down by a significant amount, to uh, trying to be a bit cuter and financing the hedges through other strategies, to uh, engaging in a wide variety of different markets. So the people who are more diversified in their vol strategies, some have done well. The cute strategies that try and finance carry have had low bleed in many cases, but may not offer the protection they need to if things get bad, and the more straightforward protective strategies have lost a significant amount because volatilities continue to go down in most risky asset markets. And, you know, even some strategies that look very attractive, I don't do them, so I'm happy to talk about them without giving any advice, uh, such as buying credit protection and so on, which have, has been something that many people have talked about in the media. That stuff is very cheap now, in my view. Um, in my non-professional view, but it hasn't kicked in. Spreads continue to be highly compressed. And uh, what you're seeing there is a losing strategy as of now, but with low bleed and large potential upside if something does break. And one must remember that, you know, as trend followers often say, compounding of returns is very, very significant. This can put a floor on, or at least a soft floor on the amount you can lose given a mega event. And so it still retains its value, in my view, assuming that the carry costs are manageable. Yeah. Okay, cool. One more thing that I wanted to um, pick your brain about on this uh, early morning, for you at least, um, and that is one of the really big topics. I think, I mean, I alluded to it in my in my market rep, but it's been going on for a while now. It's inflation. I mean, inflation, however you look at it, it's here. Yeah, even though central banks thinks it's uh, temporary, um, it's here. So what we can do as trend followers, and and again, just from the benefit of having been in business for 47 years, we have actually gone back and we've looked at how we can look, we can see how our own models in, in real time performed during different inflationary regimes in the past 47 years. We have the data, we did the trading. And that's very, very useful, I think. Having said that, you evolve your models over 47 years, so clearly our models are different than they were back in the 70s and 80s. So we've gone back and we've actually looked at, so how would our current configuration have done during three different uh, inflationary regimes? And actually, the, it was very encouraging, uh, so to speak, meaning that even though we have evolved the models um, to try and cope with a changing uh, economic environment, a changing trend environment, those changes have not deteriorated or detracted performance 
when you get these inflationary periods. Okay, so leave that as it may, right? Now, volatility hasn't been around very long. In fact, liquidity in the VIX until 2011 was probably minuscule, frankly. So my, my question is, and I don't know if you ever thought about this, is there any way to meaningfully have an idea of how volatility strategies could be impacted by sustained inflation, given the fact that since 2011, we haven't had sustained inflation, perhaps until now. Wow, I hadn't thought about this one, but in my view, high inflation is inherently destabilizing. So while it may not have a clear impact on the direction of, say, equity moves, right, it still will be destabilizing. So if you can trade long volatility without too much direction, implied direction, um, I should think that would be effective. And sorry to interrupt you there, because actually you made me think of something which is very important, and that is when you trade volatility, you're not necessarily trading direction, right? I mean, increased volatility could also happen to the upside of the S&P. I mean, the S&P could scoop up significantly and that could increase the volatility, even though we think of it as always happening when equities go down or... Yeah, okay. Uh, it is true that it, it depends on what your volatility strategy is, but you can benefit. If I bought a five-year to maturity put on the S&P that was 50% out of the money, um, so it had a strike of, let's say, 2,300, um, it doesn't really matter if the market goes up or down. It only matters if volatility five years out gets repriced. Because the delta is so low, and the vega, i.e. the sensitivity to changes in implied volatility, is so high in relative terms, it doesn't really matter if I buy a 2,300 put or, let's say, a 6,500 call going out five years. They will respond somewhat similarly to a repricing of risk. Yeah. So you can set things up to profit from uncertainty in either direction. The classic case is just buying a straddle. You buy a put and a call, same strike at, at wherever the market is, wherever the forward is, and uh, you benefit from two-sided uncertainty in that way. Yeah. And I like the fact that you said that high inflation most likely will lead to higher, let's call it uncertainty or, or more instability in the markets and maybe even more divergence in markets. I mean, we think about it divergence, meaning we would prefer markets to move more independently and not be too highly correlated. I know that's not necessarily the case for vol strategies, but certainly for a diversified trend followers, follower, we like divergence. It just helps us overall. Exactly. I mean, we, we to add to the point, we, we're kind of in a funny world where there's a feedback loop between what the central banks consider to be inflation and how they measure it and what inflation might actually be and what the market perceives it to be, which creates two sources of risk. One is when, if at all, will the central banks respond in policy terms? And the second is what will real inflation do to um, the uncertainty of outcomes for various assets? Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Anything else you want to add to this before I just round up some um, performance numbers and a few other messages towards the end? This has been um, very educational as always, Harry. Anything you want to add to this? Oh, I do. I would like to add one thing, and it's um, something I'm interested in, which is over the years, many people have talked about trading the spread between implied and realized volatility, right. which is a common strategy. And you can go to various websites and they'll rank stocks or companies according to that spread and so on. And the idea is that if the spread is very high, you want to sell options and hedge them, the underlying. If the spread is low or negative, you want to buy options and again, hedge with the underlying. But in current markets, what I've found is that given the jumpiness of individual securities and even indices, it's a dangerous strategy to pursue. So don't think that you can simply go out and sell options with high implied volatility relative to realized and expect to hedge efficiently based on the notion that realized vol will remain. So I would argue that in today's kind of zombie market, 
you need to be very careful about jumpiness in the assets uh, that you trade options in if you're trying to hedge. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Actually, uh, very important. Thanks very much uh, for bringing that up, Harry. In terms of performance um, from the trend-following uh, world, I don't have a performance. I don't really have a. Well, let me ask you this, Harry, since you're you're the you're the expert here. Is there? I mean, we talk about the SockGen trend index and the B top fifty index and all of that. What's a good index for? Vol is there a good index for vol managers? Uh, in a word, I don't think there is. I think the right thing to do is to take a naive, if you're just trying to protect against the S&P, let's say, I'll keep it simple. It's to take a naive put buying strategy and look at the P&L of that and compare it with the performance of, your, uh, of the manager you're looking to allocate to. Right. Okay. All right. Well, back to the trend following indices or CTA indices. Uh, beta 50 index is pretty flat so far this month in November as of Thursday, up 11.69% for the year. SockGen CTA index down 20 basis points, but still up 9.68% for the year. Trend index down 40 basis points, but up 13.5% uh, so far this year. And the SockGen short-term traders index up 37 basis points uh, for the month and up 2.64% for the year. As I mentioned already, Trend Barometer is still on the weakish side and uh, MSCI World up 1.55% uh, for the month and up almost 20% for the year. The World Government Bond Index, by the way, is up about half a percent so far this month. I'm going to wrap up the conversation with you, Harry. I know I'm sure you'll you'll be back on this series and, and other stuff we will do in the future. Um, but I do hope that all our listeners have enjoyed this kind of a crossover between trend and volatility because they do go hand in hand. And therefore, uh, if you did enjoy it, why not go over to iTunes and uh, leave a rating and review? That uh, way more people can find the podcast. Next week, Jerry is back to bring us all back to trend following plus nothing, of course. And if I remember, I may even reveal what my upcoming conversation that I recorded this week with Professor Steve Forrester, who together with Professor Andrew Lowe just published a great book called In Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio. I uh, did ask Steve actually what he thinks of trend following as the perfect portfolio, and I'm pretty sure you're going to be interested to hear what, uh, what his answer uh, is. So anyways, as usual, send your questions in, uh, info at toptradersonplug.com. So Jerry and I have something to uh, dig into next week. From Harry and me, thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.